Welcome everyone to episode 8 of season 1 of our Superior Sales Disruption Podcast, which is brought to you by our media partner, Retail World, Australia's premier publication of the grocery and FMCG industry. As will be the case throughout, I am joined by my comrade, uh, Mr. Mark Trulson from uh, down in Melbourne today. Uh, Mark, how are you today, buddy? I'm great, Jamie, and I'm really looking forward to our interview with Drew with you. You know, being in the beverage game most of my corporate life, I'm always fascinated learning from the industry's you know, entrepreneurial disruptors. What are you looking forward to? Mate, I'm, I'm, I'm really interested to hear about uh, Drew and, and Troy uh, and their journey with Nexpar. Uh, I've had a, a little bit to do with Troy over the years in terms of uh, um, some field marketing uh, programs that we've uh, spoken about and, uh, and, uh, and also Steve Smythe, who's, who's heading up their sales now. Uh, I've also had a bit to do with from uh, back in the PepsiCo and, and his time there. So, mate, uh, I am looking forward to, uh, to hearing from Drew. So without further ado, Drew Bilby. Welcome everyone to today's podcast. Uh, I'm joined today with our special guest, Mr. Drew Bilby. Uh, Drew is the uh, CEO and co-founder of Nexper and uh, good afternoon, mate. How are you today? Fantastic. Thanks for having me here. Very, very happy to chat. And uh, we've got our remote hero down in Melbourne, Mr. Mark Trulson. How are you, Mark? Fantastic. Really looking forward to hearing the story of one of uh, Australia's great entrepreneurial successes in beverages. Fantastic. So, uh, um, thanks for having us, Drew. It's, uh, it's, um, it's great to not just be interviewing uh, certainly senior leaders within our, cat- in our industry in the FMCG space. It is about also wanting to introduce and to speak to owner operators like yourself and obviously your partner, Troy, uh, from, from Nexper. And, uh, mate, um, normally uh, Mark and I start with, uh, or we always like a good story. So, uh, you know, give us a bit of backstory. Where, where did you guys go to school? Where, where how'd you guys meet? And, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, Troy and I do have a real unique story and it is, um, is a bit interesting, our relationship, I guess. Um, so both of us grew up in the Hills District of, uh, of Sydney. Um, I was actually number 49 and Troy was 149 on the same road. So um, there was a pretty close relationship, I guess, there um, from the start. We actually um, went to Cherbrooke Tech, which is a public school in, um, in the Hills District. And we met because I was dating Jess, who's now my wife, who's Troy's um, sister as well. So um, obviously a couple of years later and, and um, I married Jess and, and Troy is now my brother-in-law. So um, even if I wanted to, I can't get away from him. But I was going to say, mate, that's a bit close to home, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it works really well. I think, you know, that, that growing up together in a sense is, um, has really allowed us to understand each other very well when going into business with each other. And I know that you often hear um, certain things like don't go into business with family, but um, this is probably a bit of a... Um, you know, something that's working against that rule because we do have a really good working relationship. Um, and I think it's part of the reason why it is working so well. Fantastic. So in terms of, uh, I mean, obviously we, you can see where you guys met, um, but how did your career get started and, and how did that lead to Nexpa? Yeah, so um, before Nexpa, I, uh, I was lucky enough to do an exchange in Mexico, um, a university exchange whilst I was studying civil engineering. Um, while I was over there, the, you know, that whole sort of better for you beverage space was much more well-developed than what I was used to back in Australia. I was looking at, you know, iced tea over there at the time and it was about 12 to 14% of the beverage category. Coming back here, I realized that, you know, we didn't have anything like that. We had 
Lipton Ice Tea and, and um, Nest Tea at the time, they were very much Me Too products and represented about 1% to 2% of the beverage uh, market back here. Um, so I continued on working for a couple of years as a civil engineer for Boral, project manager, uh, whilst Troy was studying uh, law and communications at, at UTS. Um, and then we sort of, we, we came to each other and said, look, we really believe this is an idea here to start something that isn't happening in Australia, something that, um, you know, Australians weren't really seeing very well. And that was a real better for you category with, with you know, seriously reduced sugar or no sugar drinks um, and something that was going to resonate really well with the Australian consumer. So, uh, you know, 20, I think I was 23, Troy might have been 21. Um, we somehow managed to get enough money together to get on uh, the website Alibaba and buy a um, complete canning line site unseen delivered to a Hornsby warehouse in a, in a 40 foot container with Cantonese writing on it, nothing, nothing in English um, and spent the next six months kind of putting that together. And um, by the end of it was in a position to, to we ended up producing a hundred pallets of, of canned iced tea that was naturally sugar-free. Um, we got into a little Holden, Holden combo van, started out on the road, knocking on doors, um, trying to understand what this opportunity was, was really like and if it was a bit as big as what we believed. And we pretty quickly realized that, um, you know, yes, it was going to resonate, but we needed to get a, a really big brand awareness piece and we needed to get a really big national key account. Um, and that's kind of when we realized that, you know, we need, to, we need someone like a 7-Eleven or a Caltex or a Coles Express PNC player to launch in a national way to get that sort of household awareness um, and we were fortunate enough to get that in uh, 2012. So that was when we sort of launched our first um, iced tea nationally. Bit of a breakthrough for us. And what did your uh, family and friends say about this, mate? Like, you know, uh, brother-in-laws or at that time, maybe not brother-in-laws, mates and uh, you're going out with a sister or you were married then or? Yeah, look, I think I had, um, you know, certainly no one was, was knocking us for, for giving it a crack. I think that's part of it. You know, being an, an Aussie kind of thing, everyone wants you, you to give it a go. And that's, that's kind of part of who we are as a community. Um, my parents were incredibly supportive um, and always have been. And I think Troy was fortunate enough to have the same family background as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you get, you get mates kind of giving you a bit of a sideways look and going, you know, what are you really doing here? Just continue being a civil engineer or, or um, you know, there's not, didn't say this, but certainly felt like people were kind of, uh, looking at Troy and I and going, well, you know, what license do you have to play in FMCG when you have no background, no experience in what you're doing and you're going to have to learn everything along the way. Um, and my, the way I look back at that now is that naivety is part of the reason that we were and are being successful because if you know all of the challenges you're going to face, then sometimes that's going to have an impact on you and you're not going to want to go ahead with it. But if you're just, if you have the mentality of, yes, we're going to face things, but we're going to overcome it, then you're much more likely to be successful. Um, in terms of your risk, you, you've gone from, you know, being in construction, uh, being uh, looking at engineering into FMCG. What convinced you to take that risk? I think um, if I, I've asked myself that question a few times, and if I kind of look back on my early years before I started, you know, going to uni and whilst I was at school, um, I actually was always involved in little businesses. I think when I was 13, I started a bearing, a skateboard bearing cleaning company, um, trying to make a buck on the side. I was always interested in and really keen to kind of um, do my own thing. And I was looking for ways to probably commercialize things. 
Um, so I, I think I always have that in me to want to start my own business. And, and also when I look at my wider family, um, there's a lot of business owners in there as well. So it didn't feel like it was a step too far for me to take it. It, it probably felt like more a logical step um, to want to, to want to, I guess, um, take my own direction and start my own business and, and to obviously do that with Troy. And I think Troy had a, a similar sort of mentality as well. And uh, mate, uh, you, you know, you highlighted something that was really important. I think most people going into a business venture, um, certainly I know I did at uh, 27 and uh, started a, an organization that if I knew what I was going to confront over the next 10, 15 years, you just would throw it in the too hard basket. You just, you wouldn't follow that dream. And uh, I think uh, that's something that, you know, when we're young, we've got the, um, what's the right word? The, uh, you know, we've got the, the strength and the, uh, the run through brick wall mentality and that, that resilience to do that. Um, I think uh, as we get a bit older, we get a little bit more cautious and make more calculated uh, um, 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 decisions. But yeah, take my, I do definitely take my hat off to that because that's what creates young entrepreneurs. And, yeah, no, I appreciate and, that. And, and, and not having an FMCG background was probably favorable for you because, yep. again, you know, it allowed you to go in with a, a different look, a fresh look, um, which, is, which is fantastic. Mark, I, I'm gonna, I think um, you're hearing just that alone and buying a, buying a container on Alibaba and, and uh, that's, that's disruption at its best, isn't it? I think that's one of the best disruption uh, you know, um, landmarks you can just jump into. So. so without a doubt, what I'm fascinated with that is that, you know, if you're working at, you know, some of your competitors, Coke or Schweppes, they don't have to worry about the constraints. Um, how have you sort of embraced the fact that, you know, you started with nothing, you've taken a leap of faith and you're taking on, you know, some giant corporations. How have you embraced the constraints that have been put in your way? I think um, both Troy and I are just super passionate about being a challenger brand and, and innovating and coming up with things that just hadn't been done in the market. And our, um, our recent launch of our fermented range of kombuchas and, and other fermented products that we'll be bringing out is a really good example of that. We were sort of launched this um, an ambient shelf-stable kombucha, which um, has white paper research behind it to show the efficacy. And that hadn't been done in Australia. So we didn't know when we started on that journey, we knew it was an opportunity. We didn't know if it was possible, but if it was possible, we were absolutely going to find a way to do it. Um, so that's a, that's a, you know, it's a really clear differentiated mentality that I think um, business owners have as opposed to um, people that aren't willing to take that risk or just don't want to, don't want to find a better way, I guess. You've got to have that passion to, to want to innovate and challenge the status quo. What about your individual um, purpose and your mantra? So, you know, uh, peel back, um, peel back the uh, onion, as we would call it, Drew, and say, what, what do you feel is your core fundamentals that you were brought up with that has allowed you to go into this journey? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely um, have a big passion for health and well-being. So, for me, you know, seeing and understanding the what sugar was doing to the to the world, and and a couple of stats that I can kind of quickly roll off is diabetes is the sixth highest cause of deaths in Australia. By 2025, um, one in three children will be obese. So if we don't do something to curb that, we're going to continue to see all these really drastic um, health concerns in the Australian public. And it certainly doesn't need to be like that. So um, I've uh, yeah, grew up playing sport and was always really passionate about health. And um, I've actually now got three kids of my own and, and um, 
really want to see, you know, these kind of products, which are naturally chip free and better for you, not just in beverages, but in all food stuffs, um, is a real passion of mine. Um, so that, that's probably one of the, one of the bigger motivating factors. And, and, um, I guess just having an impact, you know, making your mark as well is, is something that I think a lot of people want to do, um, having a positive impact on your wider community. You know, we're all living in this space and whether it's Australia or the global community, um, if you can have a positive impact, I think that's a really good piece of fulfillment in your life. And what about, uh, in terms of, you know, again, looking at some of your competitors, you know, I remember being at CB where if you're going to launch a new product, you'd have 10 million bucks to launch it. You guys obviously have had to battle the entitlement of having that sort of, you know, cash or investment at your disposal. How, how have you gone about battling that entitlement and how have you used that in your favor? I think um, particularly with the conversations with the major retailers, um, you know, it's, it, it can be a challenge to get through the door because not because they don't want to range you or they don't want to have the conversation with you. It's more so that they know that you don't have the above the line budgets to give this product the kick over the line that it may need if it's not, you know, smashing it off the shelf. Um, so early on, definitely some of those conversations were, were difficult and those meetings were challenging to get in front of the right buyers. Um, but all it takes is, you know, at the end of the day, um, the retailers want a return on their investment in that, in that investment shelf space. Um, they want products to move quickly and they want category growth. So if you can show to them that your products are doing that, and particularly if you've got runs on the board as well, um, it's much easier to have those conversations and a much easier to get ranging type things. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's no doubt when you have to make every dollar work a lot harder um, than what you would if you were at a multinational, um, or you don't have you just you don't have all these millions of dollars at disposal for above line budgets, then you just you have to be much more um, considered, and um, you have to be really sure that you're getting a return on investment for uh, the likes of digital, um, or you know if you if you're willing to invest in outdoor media, all that kind of stuff. You you just got to be really sure that you're getting a return on investment. And so, how do you go about building a team around you? So, there's only a certain amount you boys can do on your own. What, how do you how do you find the right people? And you know, and, and how have you built your team? And 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 who are they that you know you you know that have been important to get the brand and the business to where it is today? Yeah, I think one thing multinationals do very well is train people incredibly well. Um, as a small business, there's no way that Troy and I can do everything, and, and we don't pretend to, to be able to be the expert at everything either. Um, and what we did do is, is look at some of these multinationals and look at some of the really good talent there and, um, you know, basically get them in our team. And we did that with our um, commercial director, Steve Smythe, who spent, uh, you know, he's, he's got 20 years FMCG experience, um, spent many years at PepsiCo and, and um, has brought a huge amount to our team in conversations with the retailers in his approach to collaboration um, his ability to get, you know, that real sort of strong return on investment from every dollar that we're spending, whether it's straights or, um, you know, any kind of trade spend with the retailers um, and making it a win-win for them as well. Um, and then when I look at our operations director, he's also from PepsiCo, he spent about eight years there. And, and the systems that he's inbuilt, you know, the, the accuracy on demand planning that we now have and our live forecast is second to none. So, we, um, a big thank you to the to multinationals for doing such a good job of training their people um, because a lot of those people are looking for an out to a bit of a, you know, something with a bit 
more work-life balance and, and Nexpo provides that and we have a really fun culture and I think it's really important to continue to build that culture. And it allows you to probably be um, quite nimble as well in terms of being able to make decisions, being able to go down the road of new, new, new product ventures and um, unfortunately some of the, the big corporates are like a slow-moving ship that they take uh, a while to turn, to turn directions. So. Without a doubt. I mean, a company like Nexpar, you're always going to have a very flat organizational structure. Um, you know, whether it's you know, anyone in the company can come and have a chat with Troy and I at any time and, and discuss ideas. So it, there's not a huge amount of red tape to get through or a huge amount of process before you're speaking to the right people. Um, we have to uh, definitely make the right decisions. So it's not saying that we're just going to go willy-nilly and make crazy decisions, but it's easier to get to have those conversations to, to get in the mind frame and making the right decisions. So in terms of, um, I mean, your industry, you know, industry and, and where you're at with beverages, there's a lot of change that's happening. I mean, I mean, Jamie and I've talked in previous podcasts that, you know, it was quite a, a simple piece in terms of selling 15, 20 years ago. Now you've got so many categories opening up. How do you keep abreast of the change that's happening, especially in the health and wellbeing space? So you can keep, you know, challenging and disrupting the status quo. Yeah. One thing I would say is that um, it's important for us not only to keep up with, we've got to be leading that innovation and the, and the sort of um, differences in the category and the category expansion, et cetera. So, you know, we are certainly keeping an eye on overseas markets and seeing what's happening in the trends. Um, we're also using the available data that we have, you know, things like Mintel data and whatnot to, to get access to, to whether it's flavor trends or yeah. functional trends or different things and just then using our um, group and, and um, also our advisory board to use it as a bit of a spitball and talk about what we could possibly go in and in directions. And, you know, for every product we launch, um, we would have talked about a hundred other products that, that didn't go to market either. Um, so we have to be at the forefront of that. Um, we are able to do that much better than multinationals can because um, their process is incredibly longer. Um, so it's important for us to, to really keep our finger on the pulse and actually be the ones that are, that are launching that innovation first. What would you say some of the career highlights for next year have been, mate? You've, uh, so you started in 2010 or the yeah, business 2000, uh, late, late 2010, October 2010 when we started. Okay. Um, you know, we've seen... A, a huge amount of highlights and, and many lowlights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the amount we'll, of time. We'll share some of those as well yeah, in a minute. So. Yeah. So um, certainly some of the highlights were, uh, you know, getting that first range in 7-Eleven. It's, um, you know, two kids, which we were back then, 23 and, and 21, um, to get ranging in a national key account. And, and a key account is as um, impressive as 7-Eleven as well. To put their faith in the fact that we can produce and deliver product um, on a national level is was... Uh, really exciting and, and gave us a huge amount of, um, I guess, just absolute kind of confidence in, in our ability and, and backing up what we have said we could do. Um, and then, yeah, certainly launching in the retailers after that. I think Coles was 2015. Um, getting that first ranging in there really takes you to that national stage and real national brand awareness piece, um, which was exciting. And, and um yeah, I think that there's been a lot of things that I'm proud of, um, things that people said couldn't be done and, and we found a way to do it or just, um, you know, bits and pieces that, that are just have been a bit of a delight that have just come around um, 
There's been a lot of those things. Um, and it's all come through. I think what makes it so good is that it's all come through your own blood, sweat and tears. You, yeah. you know, you're not getting, you're not being carried by um, a, a bigger thing here. You, you're the ones that have to make this happen. Um, and that's why it's so, you know, satisfying and fulfilling. And what about some of the lowlights, mate? What, were, what are the, what would you say uh, if you look back on it um, over the last, uh, you know, uh, eight, nine years, uh, what are, what's been one of the big roadblocks or challenges that you look at that at the time might've seen really, really confronting and, and a big problem, but maybe has turned around to be a positive, who knows? I think, um, you know, particularly in the early days, a reoccurring kind of theme that we had was cash flow. Um, the amount of times that we were down literally to zero dollars in the bank account, the amount of times when you just didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from. Um, it's pretty scary stuff. And, and particularly when, you know, then when you get a mortgage and, and, and you've got responsibilities and you get family, family. and all that kind of stuff, it, it really becomes, um, uh, you know, you, you have to overcome that fear. And, and the only way to do that is to then put that aside and just find a way to get past it. Um, so definitely the, the, not necessarily the low light, but the biggest challenge has been cash flow management for sure. And I think that's relevant through every small business and, and to large businesses to an extent, um, but particularly startup phase businesses. Yeah, definitely. And uh, we, we've had that chat actually uh, with one of our other uh, uh, podcast guests, uh, David Freeman, obviously, uh, you know, again, you can, um, you can grow, you can grow to a point where your cash flow can't keep up with you, and unfortunately, you know you, you can outgrow your, your business uh, uh, from a cash flow point of view. So having the right investors and and have you been able to ch- have you have you been able to um, really get through that process? And have you you know you had some supporters along the way? I'm I'm assuming in terms of uh, uh, investment through to the business. Yeah, definitely. So we um, opened up for our first round of investment, our Series A round uh, about two years ago, uh, or probably maybe more about 18 months ago. The process was going for about two years. Um, and we got a series of, of really, um, you know, there's some high net worth in, individuals in there. There was a little bit of VC money. Um, there were some real strategic investors as well. And, and a lot of those people are just the kind of people with incredibly smart business minds that wanted to contribute to the business. Yep. Um, so certainly from a cash flow point of view, that's, put a big ease on the on the strain there and, and allowed us to actually further invest in in um, things that we need to invest in whether it be systems or innovation or um, you know just improvements general improvements on the business has allowed us to do that and it definitely has taken away some of that cash flow strain but those people also really give you that strategic mind and mentorship as well which is critical you know you, you sometimes you don't probably realize how many times you need a shoulder to kind of lean on a little bit or an ear to talk to about some of the challenges you're going through because people can give you real context and, and um, a little bit more sort of understanding of sometimes where you're at is not as challenging as you can think it is when you're looking at it, you know, at the cold face. But if you take a helicopter view and have a look at the whole business, then there's an easy way to get out of it. So that mentorship is, is pretty crucial. What are your thoughts on that, Mark? Well, I'm, I mean, I think it's something that, uh, you know, we take for granted is that, you know, I think, you know, when you're in a corporate, you get very insular, but, you know, when you're in that entrepreneurial phase and you've got to take that great leap, you know, having a network of people you can tap into is just so crucial. So I think, you know, we're going to delve a bit further into mentoring. 
Absolutely. Um, it's definitely a, a very important one. And, and uh, when you are a, an owner-operator, sometimes it just all falls back on your table and uh, it's always on your desk. So um, having the right people around you is, is pretty critical for sure. Okay, Drew. So we sort of touched on mentoring and the importance of sort of building that network. So who have been some of your mentors and what advice you know, still resonates with you now? Yeah, I'll start off by saying the mentors that we've had in this business have been crucial to our success. I mean, I sort of mentioned it in the previous question that there's a lot of times where you need a, an ear to talk to or a shoulder to lean on. Um, one of those mentors early on for us was a gentleman called Peter Barron who actually um, invented the sipper straw. So, um, you know, the straws that basically you put into milk and turn into turn the milk into a strawberry or a chocolate milkshake. So he had not only really good FMCG experience, but also just general business knowledge um, and was, was able to really guide us. He was our first angel investor, but he was able to really guide us and help us in the decision-making process early on. One of the piece of advice that he gave me that has, has really always resonated and never gone away is that businesses die from within. So it's not usually not the external forces, but often the, the people or, or just not, not quite making the team work is why a business would die. Um, and that's really crucial to me and, and particularly in my relationship with Troy in making sure that we maintain a really healthy relationship and, and also really um, with the team as well, uh, really nurtured that team environment and my relationship with the team is really crucial. I uh, had the chance to uh, meet him on one or two occasions. Uh, we actually did a little bit of work for Sipper right at the beginning, and uh, I think he uh, they ended up selling the brand to Stuart Alexander. Or I uh, sold to no, it wasn't Stuart Alexander. It was um, it was uh, Trade Partners, I believe. Trade Partners, yeah. that is correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Field Marketing Company. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, very good. And what, what you know, Troy. Uh, what would what would Troy say as one of his mentors? Would you say, obviously, knowing him so well, and um, yeah, I think. I, I mean, he would he would certainly resonate with what I've said about um, Peter Barron for sure. He also, and I do as well. Some of the other really good mentors are um, Phil Baldock, who's part of our advisory board and, and our chairman. Um, he was the ex CEO of uh, Jim Bean Australasia and sorry, ex-president of Jim Bean Australasia um, and comes in with a huge amount of, of FMCG experience. And um, really early on, he actually started the Black Stallion Energy brand before uh, he sold that. Um, so his, his um, understanding of the industry is really, really strong and is you know, full of great advice. Um, so we've got a few of those people. John Bacon as well is, is a really strong advisor of ours who um, owned and started a pharmaceutical company. As well, so we've got, we've got a, this a really strong mentorship around us, and, and people that are, you know, familiar with both the industry and, and just general business knowledge and smarts. So you you talked earlier on about, you know, you bring one opportunity that that we see as a success, but there's probably a hundred that your advisory board and yourself talk about that may get the flick. You know, what's your philosophy behind giving failure its due, and and, and how do you approach? You know, failure, do you embrace it? Do you learn from it? You know, what are some of the lessons that you can take from that? I think you have to embrace it and learn from it because the alternative is that, you, you know, you're going to let it consume you and it's not, that's not a positive experience. So um, if you can try things, fail fast, 
um, or run with it if it's working. That's really crucial. And, and the, the really sweet spot to know if this isn't working and to move on to the next thing is, is really important as well. There's nothing worse than, than I guess, um, you know, continuing to try and be a dead horse and, and continuing on a product which isn't working. So you, you've really got to understand um, if you've launched something and it is a success, then you've got to go all in. Um, if you've launched something and it isn't a success, you have to then fail fast and you have to learn from it. Do a bit of analysis, understand why it didn't work. How can we improve for the next one? Um, or, you know, if we had done something differently, could it have worked? It's, it's really crucial to kind of do that, you know, post game analysis, if you like, and really understand um, how we, how we improve for the next one. That actually uh, um, pretty much is a, a re-mirror uh, mark of um, John Donlan from um, the CEO from uh, Pharmacare, who said one of his best pieces of advice from a, a mentor uh, back in his early day was um, to um, not be too, um, um, you know, to, to not uh, be too staunch to not change a decision. So mm -hmm. you know, if you can realise that you know that it's not working, then then there's no um, there's no negative in saying, hey, okay, that didn't work. Let's 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 take a different tack. Let's pull that up uh, and reverse the decision. I think is is important. I think the reality is when you're doing things at the cutting edge, when you're bringing out um, innovation which hasn't been brought out before, there's no no one knows how that's going to um, interact in the market you know mm -hmm. there's that that's why it's called a you know a new product because no one knows what it's going to do yep. um and sometimes they're not going to work and sometimes they are and, and you should definitely embrace that so in terms of um you know if you could go back to you see you you, you had this thought this germ of an idea back in i think it was mexico if you could go back there you know what sort of advice would you give that sort of young up and tumor in terms of taking on the leap that you have um, it's really hard for me to, to give myself a slap on the wrist and say, um, you know, you should have done something differently because I'm not sure that would be my response to it, to a, a young Drew 10 years ago. Um, but I think maybe if I flip that question a little bit and say, what advice would I give to a young entrepreneur these days is that, you know, there's never a really good time to launch a business. Um, you just, you need to be really sure that, well, you need to at least believe that you found a niche um, or an opportunity which you can uh, capitalize on or, or sort of grow if you like. Um, and then you just got to take that first step because you're never going to have the perfect business plan. You're never going to be really well funded when you're going to start a business. Um, but if you, if you take the first step, then at least you're starting to walk. And you, yes, you're going to see speed humps. Yes, you're going to have hurdles that you have to overcome. But if you never took the first step, you're never going to see any of that stuff in the first place. Um, so, you know, really give it a crack and, and take that first step is probably the advice that I would give a young entrepreneur for sure. We, uh, we must have missed the boat, Mark. Um, you know, these, uh, these innovators, these uh, disruptors, uh, you know, in, uh, you know, in Mexico coming up with ideas and what was, um, uh, David from, uh, H2K, he was in New York and come he was doing yoga in New York. Yeah. Yeah, in yoga, I don't know, mate. Where where were we when there was no New York or uh, Mexico or Bahamas back when we were innovating, mate? Yeah, but uh, you know, I think uh, having that freshness, you know, whether it's Mexico or New York, or even just having a shower and and being able to open your mind up to something, I think definitely leads to entrepreneurial success. So, yeah. um, hats off to you. Yeah, no, I appreciate that.
And uh, again, with disruption comes, uh, um, uh, I use, uh, uh, you know, I use the term disruption as challenge. So I think, you know, you, you've taken challenges, you've, you've, you've learned from those cash flows definitely been a bit of a challenge, obviously at the beginning stages, um, you know, in terms of disruption and, and how you see the market today, there is a, a lot going on in the beverage market and, um, you know, without, you know, giving away too much, you, you mentioned earlier, so you've just brought out a kombucha. Um, how are you disrupting that space? Yeah, it's interesting, um, the term disruption, because, you know, I think we look at that as disruption for me is change for the better because you're not going to disrupt um, for the sake of disrupting or, or making the market worse type thing. So everything that we, in our mentality, in our approach is how do we look what's currently happening? How do we improve on that? How do we make it better? Or how do we bring out a completely new product, which is, the best type of thing. So, I mean, that's always the, where we strive for. Um, yeah, certainly in terms of new products, we, we did recently launch our um, ambient shelf-stable kombucha range, which um, has proven efficacy as well and, and it's, it's proven to promote good gut health. Um, that's a really big one for us because, you know, effectively when we started in, in, on that journey, that hadn't been done before. We had to come up with new techniques, um, new ways of doing things to launch a shelf-stable ambient kombucha which which stayed living without being chilled um that's now really quickly become the market leading ambient kombucha in Woolworths um so whether we're selling um a, a really strong amount of product per week of, of that product and it's, it's it's turning really really well um which is really exciting for us and 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 that that for me um you know when you look at the entire beverage aisle for example you've got steep steep decline in sugary softerings um you've got a really nice um area of growth with the with the sparkling water and flavored sparkling waters in particular um you know some of those yonder year better for your products like ice tea haven't really grown in about 10 years so there's nothing really happening there so it, it is creating a bit of a vacuum for these new products and and um certainly functional beverages for us is on the horizon and you're right, I can't give away too much, but I think that's going to be a really big place for next year in the future um, and a really big place for, for many other brands as well is, you know, I think we'll see a lot of these soft drink drinkers go into more functional fermented type um, beverages, which, because people are expecting not just to drink things these days for refreshment, but also for, you know, they want a functional benefit. They want to drink something which tastes great and is going to make them feel better. They definitely do, mate, and uh, it is exciting to hear some of the things that might be coming up uh, down the track. And uh, um, the uh, beverage aisle, uh, which is well documented, Mark has changed significantly from uh, from from our days back in the uh, uh, you know the Spring Valley days, and and juice, and you know, and sports drinks, and uh, uh, and energy drinks. I mean, it, it, you know, it it has changed dramatically, and and and. You're right, though, that that has created a vacuum for these new innovations and, and just the well-being uh, yeah, to, absolutely. Become, to yeah. become very, uh, very much the next, the next generation. Yeah, um, for sure, without a doubt. So, in terms of uh, you know, you, you've obviously you know really embraced sort of personal disruption, and you've really challenged yourself. Um, what do you see as you know your next you know big leap if you can you know have the crystal ball out for the next five or 10 years, you know, what's going to be, how are you going to go from mastering what you're doing now to say the next phase? 
Yeah, so we as a business have, have seen incredible growth over the past three years. We, we've had about 150% year-on-year growth. Um, we're on track to do that again this year. And the FY24 cast looks very similar as well. So um, we're growing really, really fast. From an Australian business perspective, where um, we are very focused on our core range products. You know, we've got soft drinks in the market, the naturally sugar-free soft drinks. We've got naturally sugar-free sparkling water sugar-free tonics and the, and the kombuchas are more recent as well um we're, we're we're seeing tremendous growth in there and i really want to make sure that we are focused on shoring up the core products in australia um, and that's driving the majority of the growth as we said in fy20 um, but then more recently we actually launched overseas in the uk market into the sainsbury's chain which is uh, i think it's the second biggest supermarket in the uk and and we're seeing um the initial rate of sale is, is really strong and, and very similar to what we're, we're achieving in the Australian markets for the products that we put over there. Um, we've obviously got a really big job to, to build that market in a sustainable way, um, which will involve you know, local manufacturing and, and um, supporting that product locally with you know, a certain level of marketing. And, and um, you know, when we think about it's taken us nine, nine years to build the business in Australia so far, and we've been in the UK for six months, there's a, huge amount of work to do so um we're certainly focused on the core products in australia continuing to bring out that innovation at the same time and then also making sure that we create a sustainable business in the uk which um you know really starts to to get you know top line revenue growth and and um really strong performance for the business that's um that's a key uh point that you just uh, referred to there drew so Keeping your eye on the prize is a real big challenge for businesses. Uh, you know, I know that, um, you know, the minute you take your eye off the core ingredient of what you do and, um, you know, certainly, um, you know, at a field marketing company where we were the experts in petrol and convenience, uh, route and impulse, that was our core fundamental. And, uh, you yeah, know, through just natural growth, we went into grocery uh, in field marketing on behalf of a number of clients. And, and I, all of a sudden, you know, I just I felt, you know, in hindsight, looking back at it, it probably took our eye off the prize a little bit of what we were good at, what 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 was our foundation of what we built and why and our, our, you know, our core competency, one for a better word. And, uh, you know, so it, it, for your brand, and, and, and certainly from 20 years of learning, you've got to really embed that here. And, and obviously you, you, you want to, you need growth and growth comes from overseas. So is Troy sort of going to be, um, you know, um, doing that, that part of the business over in the UK and, and sort of running that part while you're here and, and keeping the eye on the prize or? Yeah. So we've, we've spent a lot of time sort of thinking about who's best suited for which roles in the business. And, yep. and certainly my role is um, the CEO and, and looking after the Australian business is and, and the team and, and, continue to run over here um it does make a lot more logistical sense for me i do have three kids as well and and um troy at this stage doesn't so it is you know it does make a lot it is easier for him to go over and travel um he's also got an incredibly good skill set in terms of um you know talking about the sizzle of the brand and really selling the romance and and opening doors um from a networking point of view so he's absolutely the right guy to go and um plant the seed in the UK and, and start to develop the team over there um, while we focus on the, the real core of the business at the moment in the Australian market. Actually, um, I've got a funny story I'm going to share with the listeners and uh, even you, Mark, might not know this one. And uh, uh, so I now know who my roadblock was at uh, Nexpa. Um, so I reckon... Uh, 
So Troy come and knocked on my door at least six or eight. This would be, he's going to laugh as well at this story. And yeah, he come and knocked on my door about six times. Come and sit in front of me, tell me about this great new product and, you know, the sizzle. Yeah, he had the sizzle. No problem about it. So, you know, I, I'd, give him, I'd give him some go-to-market plans and some field marketing, uh, you know, launch, launch stuff for, for, for you know, team capabilities and one-state trials and a whole – I reckon I had six or eight different models that I'd presented to it. And every time I'd come back, it'd come back with a – Oh, um, oh, Drew, my partner, and you know he's just not ready for that right now, and and so I got to, I'm going to have to say, no wonder our roads didn't cross too much, because uh, you know you must have been that you were the roadblock at the other end there, mate. So, but oh, roadblock, or yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're making the best decision for the company at the time, but <laughs> absolutely, yeah. absolutely, you know what, it might not have been ready for it at that time. Certainly, uh, I might not have got paid for it at that time. But, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think that is a really good point to raise, apart from obviously. Um, you know, we do have a bit of history sort of working together a little bit. Um, but we, you know, one thing as, as part of our focus, which I didn't really touch on, is just getting our PNC business right. Um, we've got a really strong grocery business and there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, at this point in time, we, you know, we didn't, we haven't and we still don't yet have the right range for PNC to be a success. And we've known that as well. Um, yes, we've been hopeful and, and it's really good as an entrepreneur to think you can always win. You've also got to be uh, realistic as well. And, and we certainly, you know, certainly knew at the, at the time that we didn't quite have the right range to make PNC a success. Um, you know, but that, that's a big focus for us to change that in sort of the next six to 12 months is, you know, looking at the consumer in PNC because they are different from retail. Yep. Um, making sure we do have the products which are going to work really well and, and then the, the right sort of business model to make it a success. Um, so yes, and maybe I was a roadblock. <laughs> it's no, but it's fascinating, uh, Drew, to me that topic you just brought up because if I look back, you know, five, ten, fifteen, twenty years, you know, the 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 road to success that every marketer or salesperson was told you you win on premise, and then the off premise rewards will come. Um, so you know, if we're in the beer category, you know, you'd go to the the coolest bar, you'd make sure your beer was there. And then, you know, you, you do it off premise. It seems like that rule has just changed dramatically that, you know, you can successfully launch in grocery and then the, the cool bars will follow. Can you sort of explain to us how that change has happened? I think because we've um, seen it with Remedy, we've seen it with other brands yeah. that they've started grocery and gone, you know, to the cool places after. I think when you look at the, um, the Australian market is, you know, on a global scale, we're reasonably small, 20, yeah. 23 to 24 million people. Um, the, when you look at the manufacturing side of things, the MOQs are still quite large. Um, and so you need to be doing, you know, reasonably big volumes to get the right economies of scale to be able to compete with some of these brands. Yep. Um, and particularly with, the, say, the route trade, for example, the cost to serve in the route trade is, you know, significant. Um, and you need to be doing really big volumes to be successful. And it's not that dissimilar to the PNC. You know, the PNC margins are more um, and, and the volumes are less. There's, it's, it's harder to um, merchandise and there's, there's more fragmented um, franchises as well. So you, when you look at the logistics of it, it's easier to be successful. Well, it's easier to um, satisfy MOQs and, and get brand awareness in the, in the retail um, space not necessarily to be easy to be successful, but however, once you do become successful, it's a much easier push then to go into PNC because the PNC trends tend to follow the retail trends just on a different pack size. Yep. 
um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a really good place for someone to trial a single unit and then go into the retailers and buy a four pack. But if they're already buying the four packs, they're actually more likely to, to pick up a single unit in PNC. And that has changed. That's, that's, re- that's really reversed over the 20 years. Um, certainly from a, you know, a NPD launch and many different beverages that we launched over the years. Um, you know, I think uh, you know, Up and Go was probably one of the ones that I recall. We really had a, a route strategy first before it went to grocery. Um, you know, Lipton Ice Tea was certainly another one back then. So, you know, it, it, it is now, seems like it's the formula to get into the, the majors to the retailers. And once you do get in there, you're right. So if they're going to buy a four pack, they're, they're inclined on, on the run. To buy a single serve, uh, you know, without a doubt, and chilled yeah. it, yeah. and and they know they're paying more. You know, that's yeah. that's why they're calling on a convenience store. But it is still a, a channel of growth, uh, certainly in Australia. PNC uh, uh, certainly grew last year. I think the route and impulse is is, is always going to be challenged, challenged. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and, and and has been a declining. Rate. And and it will be interesting over the next sort of five years, in particular, to see what actually happens in PNC, because what I think we'll see is that. You know, they're turning more into sort of top-up um, purchases and, and sort of mini supermarkets, if you like. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, you mentioned on the run, they're doing a fantastic job in South Australia. Um, they are probably the best in the market in terms of what they're doing, in terms of that top-up shop. Um, but I think we'll see more and more PNC um, chains moving to, in that direction. Mate, uh, just to uh, sort of... Uh Run us through to uh, a little bit about uh, Drew. So, what do you do on the weekends, mate? You, uh, you, you, you keep fit. You, you're involved in sports or you know, yeah. the kids. Yeah, so still, uh, still playing footy. Played AFL for about twenty, probably twenty five years now. This is a little. I was kicker, and when I was about four, um, and then uh, got three kids. So that takes up the probably one hundred and ten percent of my time with um, <laughs> trying to juggle that. So yeah, between footy. Um, the kids try and get for a surf every so often. I live down on the northern beaches now. Um, you know that keeps me pretty occupied. I think. And uh, who's your footy team, mate? Give them a plug. Who's who's? Uh, you can't go past the red and white, mate. This one, I mean, they didn't start. They haven't started the season great, but um, you know, I think they're slow starters generally. But definitely the Swannies. And uh, Mark, uh, is there, um, mate, uh, anything you wanted to uh, uh, wrap up or or ask Drew in in in? in uh, the the, far, the last wrap-up here, mate? No, I think it's all covered. I just think uh, it's just been a great conversation about someone who's, you know, embraced personal disruption. And I think what we're seeing with that is that, you know, your business has taken that disruption to a new four and uh, I expect some great things from Nexpo moving forward. So thank you very much, Drew. Uh, thanks, Mark. And it's been, yeah, it's been fantastic to chat to both yourself and Jamie and, um, it's always it's always good in, in these little chats to kind of reminisce and, and it reminds me of the journey as well. So it's been good to chat. Yeah, mate, I'll uh, have to let Troy know. I uh, Don't tell him, mate, that uh, I used to see his number come up my phone. I go, oh, here we go again. What's he, what's he going to ask me now? So uh, um, we'll, uh, we'll certainly, uh, we've moved on past that. But sure. uh, look forward to catching up with you guys for a, a next kabucha or your next uh, product uh, uh, and watching that journey. So, mate, thanks for your time this afternoon. Uh, I know you've got a media shoot and stuff to get on to. So, uh, uh, it's been great to catch up and uh, all the best to you and Troy and uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. Well done. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Well, Mark, that was a great uh, journey to be able to walk down with uh, Drew and and uh, and understand a bit more about him and uh, his partner, Troy, who I've known for a number of years. And, 
mate, uh, what, were, what were the key takeouts for you? I think the three things that stood out for me were, you know, firstly, you know, at a very young age, they, they understood intuitively that they had to take the right risk. You know, they probably had a few people saying, you know, what would you know, you know, stick to your knitting. But they took the right risk and, you know, 10 years later, you know, Nexper is a, is a bit of a sensation. I think secondly, you know, they've, you know, they know where they stand. So they've embraced constraints. They haven't, you know, whinged about not having the resources. They've gone out and got it done. And probably thirdly, their ability to battle entitlement. You know, I think a lot of us sort of have rules in place. You know, one of the rules being that, you, you know, you start on premise and then you go off premise, but they've flipped that. And I think it's led to their success. What about yourself? Mate, I, uh, I always love a good story, as we know, and uh, particularly ones with a bit of a hard, uh, you know, a hard challenge to them. And, um, mate, uh, love the beginning, um, you know, at the, you know, they, they, they bought a container online from Alibaba. It was a canning machine and got it delivered to, uh, to uh, Hornsby and um, took them six months to put it together. So uh, that's really, really the fabric of, uh, of an entrepreneur and, and, and starting from scratch. Um, Definitely, uh, I also would say that for young uh, people that are wanting to get into, you know, having their own brand in beverage, snack, confectionery. So the, the second thing was, you know, if you knew what you knew uh, and you were already a seasoned campaigner, you probably wouldn't start a new business. It is just the roadblocks and the red tape involved is, is, is a challenge. So, you know, I'd encourage anyone, um, you know, at a young age, if you've got a great idea, have a crack at it. Don't just uh, don't just look back and uh, you know when you get to uh, you know when you get to our vintage mate to, to to be looking back and going oh what what should I have done what could I have done so and mate the, and the really the third one is um, you know, keeping your eye on the prize. Um, it is really important. Um, you know you can unfortunately uh, lose track when we get a bit fragmented and going different trying to juggle so many things that you know we can lose uh, the vision and the and and, and really the visibility of, of what your core competency should be. So really keeping, uh, keeping true to what you start a business for is definitely one of the things I would, I would recommend as a key takeout. So on that note, I would like to uh, thank our guest, uh, Drew Bilby, for this afternoon. Uh, we couldn't have done it without the production expertise of Young Gun, Lake Labina. As always, many thanks goes to uh, our creative partner, uh, Ant May from Ant Design, Sydney's leading uh, digital agency and, uh, and website designers. And, uh, you know, next week, uh, I look forward to bringing to you uh, our, our podcast next week. Going to hear from uh, another really dynamic, uh, really soul-to-the-earth person that I think is going to, uh, you know, um, everyone's going to enjoy and, um, and, and hear his story of uh, his progression in the FMCG over the last uh, number of years. So, um, I'm really looking forward to that, mate. So, till next week.